Uh, we are continuing our series, uh, sermon series this summer through uh, Psalm 119. Um, our text today uh, is the second stanza, the second set of eight verses in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. So you can go ahead and turn there, and we're going to read from that in just a little bit. As a reminder, Psalm 119 is a poem. It's a special type of poem, though. It's an acrostic poem. And so in an acrostic poem, the first letter of every verse, typically, would uh, begin with a particular word that spells out another word as you move from verse to verse. Um, Usually a a word of significance to the poem, it might kind of sum up the meaning of the poem. It might name the subject of a poem. For instance, I love my wife, Kit. I could write an acrostic poem to her, a simple three-verse poem. First verse, starting with the a word that starts with K and working through I and T. But since I am nowhere close to being a poet, and that when you put me on the spot and try to get me to think of a word that begins with a particular letter, I go completely blank, I would quit writing the poem, I'd write her a sappy love note instead, and she would love it nevertheless, I hope. Um, But the psalmist is a master poet, and, and inspired by God through the Holy Spirit to write this prayer. So he wrote an intricate, very uh, detailed, designed poem uh, that uh, each of the, of the verses in, uh, each of the eight verses in each stanza starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He started in that first stanza with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, He works all the way through the 22nd stanza with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what we end up with, after all that design, and God providentially working on this man to design for us scripture, is a very personal prayer. Very personal prayer to God, expressing a deep love and trust in God and in his power to work by his word in this man's life and bring about wonderful and great things. So let's go ahead and read together. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Psalmist starts by asking, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight In your statutes, I will not forget your word. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we're thankful for this inspired poet, songwriter, bringing to us this beautiful poem of Psalm 119. This this man in love with you, desiring to have all of the abundant life that you 
want for us, dedicated to seeing that happen through your word. Because his faith is in that you are powerful to make use of your word in his life. Father, would you please open our eyes, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Using the psalmist's own words, we pray, let us see wondrous things out of your law. And would you, Lord God, please change us. Please make us more like your son. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, For many years, I worked with a fellow named Joe. Joe was uh, the director of software development at my company. Um, I got to work on several projects with him, uh, several, probably even more, crises uh, with him. Um, He was a unique guy. He was brilliant. Very, very smart guy. I say was. He's not at my company anymore. He still is. Okay, he's not passed or anything. Uh, Brilliant man. um, Able to uh, code circles around other programmers, but also a really good, great communicator. A wonderful leader of his team. Um, He knew our business. Uh, He just knew our business so well. Better than, than some of the folks in the field that are running our properties. Certainly better than many people in our corporate office. And he was kind, he was caring. Uh, he treated others, myself included, not like, just like as a resource, as, a, as another person to get things done for him, but as, as a real human being. He loved people. The great thing about working with Joe was how it made me feel. Working with this man made me feel like we were definitely going to get done whatever it was we were working on. Whatever crisis was happening, we were going to settle. We were going to make it better. Whatever project, we were going to succeed in getting it done. It was going to work well. He made me confident, and he made me better. He made me better at what I do. Everyone whose faith is in Christ has a friend like Joe. A friend, though, who's not just a great guy, not just brilliant, not just wonderful to work with, but a great God. That's significant. It's significant for us to keep in mind as we look at this stanza of Psalm 119. Because the subject of this second stanza is the pursuit of holiness. As soon as we're reconciled to God through faith in Christ, a war begins within us a war with our own sin. As soon as we're made a new creation in Christ, we have this newfound desire to please God. That was, a, that was an amazing thing for me to, to feel when I became a Christian as a young man. We want to live in a way that pleases him. But even the Lord's redeemed children struggle in this earthly life with an enemy that opposes this idea of pleasing God. We all wrestle with sin. Every one of us wrestles with this tendency to distrust, to dishonor, and to disobey our Lord. To be a Christian is to be at war with sin. But thanks be to God, he is with us in this struggle. He is for us. He's like a friend named Joe, who makes you better at what you do. He's like a friend named Joe who makes you more confident in doing it, all except he's so much powerful than Joe. 
so much kinder, so much more loving, so full of grace toward us. The message today is encountered, how can I keep my way pure? The question of the psalmist. And, and here's what we hear the Lord saying in Psalm 119, and what I hope to uh, explain further for us today. Those who know the blessedness of God will delight in the pursuit of holiness. Those who know the blessedness of God will, will delight in the pursuit of holiness. Uh, I'm praying that, that God will use these verses, this second stanza of the psalm, to renew and to increase our desire, your desire, your delight, your fruitfulness in pursuing holiness by the grace of God. So here are the points we're going to cover. The first point is the psalmist's desire. That's uh, verses 9 through 11. And then second one is the psalmist's epiphany, verse 12. And then lastly, the psalmist's delight, and that's verses 13 through 16. So first, the psalmist's desire, looking at these first three verses. The psalmist opens the stanza with the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? A great question. He wants to keep his way pure, but what is this about a young man? Why a young man in particular? Is the pure life only for those who are young and, and male? Uh, probably not. Um, every Christian, every Christian who isn't young or male knows the struggle that we have with sin within us. So why say young man? Uh, well, it's very likely that the psalmist is a man and that he considers himself young. We can't know how old he is, but whatever he is, he thinks he's young. He is the young man. And the whole psalm is a personal prayer from this man to his God. So he's really asking, how can I keep my way pure? Just as you might ask, how can a teenage girl keep her way pure? Or how can a middle-aged woman keep her way pure? Or how can an old man keep his way pure? I'm not looking at anyone. <laughs> the psalmist's desire is to live a pure life. And while we can imagine what a pure life looks like, the psalmist describes it for us as well. Second half of verse 9, he answers his own question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it, by guarding that way according to your word. It's both an answer and, and a description. The pure way is one that's in accordance with Scripture. The world that God created is certainly enough for us to know that he is and that we ought to worship him and serve him, but only through the word of God, only through this, these scriptures does God reveal how we are to live. In the pages of our Bible, God shows us the path that he wants us to walk in, the path that pleases him, the path, the path that's good for his creatures. And then in the second half of verse 10, the psalmist says, let me not wander from your commandments. It's both a petition a request of God, and a description. Again, walking in the way of purity means obeying all the commandments of God. When we walk in the way that is pure, we do what God commands us to do. We refrain from doing what he tells us not to do. 
And then in the second part of verse 11, the psalmist prays that I might not sin against you. That's it, sin. We understand that word. Sin is the opposite of purity. Uh, but just to put a definition to it, Wayne Grudem, theologian, defines sin as any failure, anyone, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Since, since purity is the opposite of sin, then the way that is pure, this pure life lived in conformity to the moral law of God in act, attitude, and nature is what we're seeking to do. The psalmist desperately, desperately wants to live as God would have him live. He wants what is in other places in the Bible called holiness. He's pursuing holiness. So what happens when we put ourselves into this psalm? If we pray these first three verses to God ourselves, we get to do so under the benefit of the new covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Jesus did what only he was capable of doing. He lived as a child of God on this earth in complete conformity to God's moral law, to his father's moral law. He did he did only what pleases the Father, and he never did anything to wander from the paths of his commandments. His attitude was always in agreement with the Father's revealed will. He was angry, but he didn't sin. He was jealous, but only for God to be glorified. He was completely absent any desire to have or to take anything that the Father hadn't already given to him, only Jesus obeyed the greatest commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus did these things perfectly. Having fulfilled every demand of God's law, Jesus then paid the penalty for our sin against God. And he did that by dying in our place. When we put our faith in Christ's work and that death on the cross, God declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. For all of eternity, God will deal with those who are in faith in Christ as though they lived the righteous life that only Christ lived. So why is that not the end of sin then? Because while faith in Jesus' death, faith in that resurrection that broke the power of sin over us was a very real breaking of the power. Sin remains within us. God saw fit to let sin remain. Theologians call this indwelling or remaining sin. And every Christian can utter as their own words the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 15 through 17, when he says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Those are true words about each one of us. We could each say this. We desire to live righteously, 
but we must fight for it. We must fight for righteousness against our own indwelling sin. The Bible calls this process sanctification. Uh, it's the process of growing uh, less and less sinful in our behavior and in our attitudes and more righteous, more um, pleasing before God in those attitudes and actions. And the Lord guarantees that we're going to succeed in this by putting his Holy Spirit within us, by giving us the gift of his Holy Spirit and what Peter calls the sanctification of the Spirit. Now we have a divine friend, much more powerful than my friend Joe. We have a divine friend at work in us to help us become more holy, to help us become more like Jesus Christ in his character. Sanctification is really a cooperative effort. Justification, that act of God to declare us righteous based on our faith in Christ, that's a one-sided deal. He initiated it, he does it, it's done. But in sanctification, we get to work. We get to work along with God. We supply very real but human effort while the Lord supplies very real and divine power to make it happen. God is at work ensuring that our pursuit of holiness is going to succeed. The question becomes for us then, whether young or old or male or female, do you desire to keep your way pure? Do you desire to live in accordance with God's word? And if so, then we should all ask like the psalmist, Lord, how can I live a life that pleases you? Let me not wander from your commandments. The second point, the, the psalmist's epiphany, verse 12. In uh, the three opening verses of the stanza, the psalmist expresses this very real, very strong desire to pursue holiness and to live rightly before his God. And then suddenly, he has this epiphany. He comes to a, a sudden and, and very significant realization. Verse 12, he declares, Blessed are you, O Lord. Blessed are you, O Lord. It's the only statement about God in this stanza, which should then bring our attention to this particular statement. It's a, dominant, a predominant idea in scripture. Many Old Testament saints are quoted as saying, blessed be the Lord, just as Noah said in Genesis 9, 26. And the psalmist isn't the only writer of scripture that, that calls God blessed. The apostle Paul says that God is the blessed and only sovereign in 1 Timothy 6. And at the beginning of that same letter, Paul refers to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The blessedness of God is a, a standard point in Orthodox Christian doctrine. So I turn to two uh, good, very good theologians to get some help with this. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology and Fred Sanders, who's professor, at least was a professor at Biola when he wrote the article I read a year ago. Both uh, Grudem and Sanders Describe blessed, just as Ron did for us uh, when he opened up this, um, this psalm to us first in the first message of this series. Uh, Grudem writes, to be blessed is to be happy in a very full and rich sense. 
And Sanders writes, to be God is to be happy. Uh, but, you know, our word happy, it just, it's not as full as it needs to be. It's not as rich. It, it can't car quite carry the weight of this truth about God. So Sanders writes more. He says, God possesses whatever we should call the absolute solid and real thing that happiness and joy are just a shadow of. The happiness and joy that we experience is a shadow of the real happiness and joy, the holistic, complete happiness and joy that God experiences of himself. The article that Sanders wrote is called To Be God is to Be Happy, uh, which helps us to understand how it is that God is holistically, deeply happy. And he first looks at God's relationship with his creatures. See, God is, he's fundamentally self-sufficient. As Sanders writes, he says, the word blessed opens up a vision of God as infinitely transcending all incompleteness. There's no incompleteness anywhere in God's being. No incompleteness anywhere in his experience. God has absolutely no needs. Even relationally, God doesn't need anything. He's triune in nature, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means that he's relationally self-sufficient as well. He's perfectly fat satisfied in the divine fellowship that is him. Now, don't take this wrong. Don't, don't let your takeaway be that God is quite indifferent to your existence, that he'd be just as happy without you. Let's not, let's not think that. Let's instead know that the perfectly self-sufficient, gloriously self-satisfied God of the universe created each of us. He created each of us out of the overflow of his completeness, the overflow of his satisfaction, the overflow of his perfect love. He created all things, including us, to bless us. He didn't need to do it. It pleased him to do it. It's for our happiness and for his very great glory. Sanders looks next in looking at the blessedness of God, at God's perfections. Uh, blessedness, if you look at a systematic theology text, uh, blessedness would be counted as the, by the theologian as one of the attributes of God, uh, something that's intrinsically true about God, about his character, what he's like. So blessedness would be amongst a very long list of attributes. But blessedness is also the result of having all the perfections that God possesses in himself. So again, Sanders, so good to, to look to here. He says, if you take all that it means to be God, his goodness and mercy and truth and faithfulness and beauty and steadfastness and patience and wisdom and consider them simultaneously as God's own inmost possessions, you get the doctrine of divine blessedness. God is blessed. He is perfectly happy, completely satisfied because he enjoys at all time without fail 
all of his own perfections, all of the perfections of his glorious and great character. God's self-sufficiency, the sum of his perfections, his triune being, everything else that he is, makes him supremely happy, supremely satisfied. God is happiness. He is satisfaction. He is peace. He is harmony. He is blessedness. Now, why does the psalmist declare that the, the blessedness of God right in the center of this prayer about pursuing holiness? It can almost seem out of place where it's at. He declares that God is blessed in verse 12 because God's not asking for us to be moralists. He's not asking us to be people that merely think and behave rightly. He's not after robots. He's after our hearts. He's after our thinking and our actions, that they would be the overflow, that they would flow from a heart that's inclined to him, a heart that's motivated by who he is and what he does and the love that he's shown to us in Christ Jesus. Our former associate, Pastor Lynn Baird, was always so good to remind us to let the indicative lead and motivate us to do the imperative. Truths about God and uh, about his redemptive work, those are the indicatives, those are the indications. Those are things that we ought to know about him. And these indicatives should be our inspiration. They should be our, our motivation to live in the ways that please God. The imperatives, the commands, the rules, the do this and the don't do that. The blessedness of God, his all-surpassing beauty, his supreme happiness are meant to shape our minds and our hearts. They're meant to get at us at the core of who we are. When God unveils our, our faces, when he allows us to behold his glory, we're transformed, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3. What happens, that happens not just when we, we behold God's blessedness, but when we look at any of the number of God's wonderful and beautiful attributes, when we look at his character, or when we look at any facet of the gospel of Christ Jesus, of the giving up of the Son on our behalf to cleanse us of our sins. When he allows us, when he unveils our faces and allows us to behold his glory, we are changed. So God's beauty, his happiness, his satisfaction will become the fuel. It's to become the fuel that propels us forward in this pursuit of holiness, in this uh, walking out of the way that is pure. It's to help us stay upon the path of his commandments, to not sin against this holy and happy God. And God's blessedness becomes a model for us as well. It becomes something for us to emulate. God wants us to be holy as he is holy. And he also wants us to be blessed, to be happy, to be perfectly satisfied as he is happy and perfectly satisfied. After being declared righteous by faith in Christ, aligning our desires and our ways with what God wants for us, that's the recipe for the blessed life, for a holistic and deep happiness, uh, not just, not, not surface level, a happiness of soul that deep of a happiness. Pursuing holiness 
leads us down the path of grace. It's paved on that path. We are saved by grace and we work in sanctification also by God's unmerited favor. The pursuit of holiness is the path of peace. We will in most we'll most experience ease, we'll most experience peace when we are living in a manner that is pleasing with God. It is the path of strength. We will endure the sufferings caused in the fallen world and by our own sin because of the surpassing joy that comes from being made right with God by his grace and growing in Christ's likeness. And pursuing holiness is the path of mission as well. The most productive servants in God's kingdom are those who are living the blessedness that flows out of growing in holiness. And that brings us to our third point, the psalmist's delight. Verses 13 through 16. Who God is, his beauty, his blessedness, follow me here, it's cream filling. Uh, it's, it's such a shallow illustration. God's beauty, his blessedness is the cream filling between our desire for holiness and our delight in the pursuit of holiness. Now, many of us enjoy cream-filled sandwich cookies. You know you do it. It may be an Oreo. It may be one of the many variations on the theme, ones with wonderful cream flavors like hazelnut and peanut butter and coffee and you fill in the blank, whatever it is that's your joy. The cream filling is what makes that cookie special. God's blessedness, every facet of his character is the cream filling between our desire to keep our way pure and our delight in pursuing that way of purity. Sanctification, folks, we know this, sanctification can be very hard work. It can be slow work. It's at times very, very disappointing work. God's blessedness is the cream filling that makes the work of sanctification no longer a drudgery to us. It brings joy to the task of being like Christ and working at it. Don't pull apart the cookie. Don't eat that cream filling out of it all by itself. Let God's happiness, happiness at the sum of his perfections, link your desire with your will to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to willing to work by his good pleasure. Let it inspire and motivate you to pursue holiness. Seek holiness to please the blessed God and seek holiness to find more blessedness in your life. The psalmist has this epiphany of God's blessedness and then in the next verses, his heart is just altogether lit up with delight in God's word. Why does he turn, from, turn to delighting in the God-breathed scriptures after he has this epiphany of God's happiness, of God's, of God's blessedness? For one, the happy God whom he adores has revealed himself in this book. He's shown the psalmist. He's showing us who he is. Yes, he's, he's, he's shown himself in nature, that general revelation um, of God, 
of God's being and his authority is enough to hold us uh, condemned if we, if we fail to honor him as God and to submit to him. That's Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 1. But, but the God-inspired, God-breathed, God-birthed writings of the 66 books that make up your Bibles, these holy scriptures, they show us God in detail, in vividness, in a vividness that just can't be had by just looking at nature. And the psalmist also delights in God's word because it reveals the path, it reveals the road that he should walk down, that God wants him to take. Through the words of scripture, God instructs us on holy, li holy living that pleases him and that brings about the fruit of blessedness. This, this psalm writer, this song writer, he knows this. To keep his way pure, he knows that he must conform his way with God's word. And that's what he says so in verse 1. He knows that to wander from the Lord's commandments is to become impure. Psalmists are higher, so much higher than our ways, says Isaiah. God's word not only conveys those thoughts, conveys those words, those ways to us, his word also works to accomplish them in our lives. There's power in the divine word of instruction. There's power in all the words of scripture that God has given us. The same power, the same divine power that was at work in creation when God spoke and everything sprung into existence from nothing, that sort of power is in the word of God to do his will, his working, his shaping of us. The psalmist, his delight takes on a particular shape. In verse 14, he delights in the way of God's testimonies. The Lord has testified in his word the best path for his creatures to take in life. It's a path of purity. It's a path that leads to blessedness. The psalmist is delighting in this particular portion of the scriptures, the one that shows him the path, the way that he ought to live, that the part that tells him how to live righteously, how to live in a God-honoring fashion, how to please his Lord. His desire for holiness has been transformed into a delight in the pursuit and walking out of holiness. And his delight in the paths of righteousness is as great, he says, as in all riches. He doesn't say as much as in all my riches. He says, as, he says, as much as all riches, the way of your testimonies, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. All riches, that's a very great thing. He says, he's saying, give me the wealth of all the nations, all the banks, all the company, the 2% the of the entire world, all the governments, give it all to me, and my wealth will not exceed the wealth I have in having these scriptures before me, being able to read God's very own words, because these are his God-breathed words. God's blessedness, God's own blessedness, and the awareness that a, a similar happiness, a similar peace can be ours has brought this psalmist to not just desire righteousness, but to delight in the pursuit of righteousness. 
God's blessedness and the resulting delight in God's word and his ways has invigorated this psalmist's confidence as well. It's affected how he goes about the task of pursuing righteousness. It's given him a confidence that's from above. There's been this progression in the stanza. The the psalmist moved from past and, and present efforts to grow in godliness to this wonderful and great epiphany of God's blessedness, which has produced a confidence for future fruitfulness. A confidence that, that his will is fully engaged and will continue to be fully engaged in this task of becoming more like Christ, pursuing holiness. His desire, turning into delight, culminates in these wonderfully powerful statements about, about the future, his future work that he's going to do at the close of this meditation. This almost says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Those are very confident statements for him to make. He's making them because God is at work empowering the work that he is doing to pursue holiness. The indicative has stirred confidence that the imperative is altogether and completely achievable. God impressed upon the songwriter's heart a single truth about the divine character, that the Lord, our God, is blessed. He's eternally happy. He's completely satisfied. The truth of this, the sight of this truth about God's character is now being used by the Spirit of God in this man to birth confidence, to pursue righteousness every day of his life, all the way until his days on earth are done. May our Lord, may our Lord do the same work in our souls. Let's conclude with a a comment and then a recommendation relating to the psalmist's strategies uh, for holiness. We're we're always at risk um, of seeking to do right by God in order to earn his favor. Uh, We can be so easily tricked into thinking that We need to earn this relationship with God rather than just receive it by his grace. And friends, uh, this is a deception that comes from both of our chief enemies. It comes from Satan himself and it comes from the sin that lies within us. Yes, we must pursue righteous living, but we need to always pursue that righteous living knowing that our reconciled relationship with God stands only on his unmerited favor to us. This very much unearned favor of God. Our reconciliation with God, our adoption as daughters and sons is based only on the death of Christ Jesus for our sins and only on God's grace to apply that death to our lives to count it as us dying. So don't make the psalm, don't make um, the, the psalmist's effort to grow in holiness, um, don't see this as an attempt for him to build a tower up to God. That's not what he's doing. The psalmist works strategically. He's working smartly. He's working hard in a manner to grow in godliness. But he does so always dependent on God's power. 
on God's power to change him. And we see that in this psalm, his dependence on God when he cries out to God to work in him. At the end of verse 10, he prays, let me not wander from your commandments because he knows the power not to wander from his commandments. doesn't lie in himself, but in God's power. And in verse 12, after the epiphany, where he says, blessed are you, O Lord, he pleads with God, teach me your statutes because he knows that he must be taught and he knows that only God can teach him the way he ought to live. We must work for holiness, but always surrounded, always being bathed in a confession, a confession that growth and holiness will only be accomplished by the Lord empowering our uh, very feeble efforts. Here's my recommendation. Pursue holiness and ask God. Pursue holiness and plead with the Lord to combine your weak efforts with his divine power, his amazing power to cause you to grow in Christ-likeness. The worship team can go ahead and come up. Um, one more recommendation to consider, if you would, please. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart. And then he twice in the psalm later on mentions meditation on scripture. Storing up the word in our hearts simply means memorizing uh, verses, short passages, possibly long passages of scripture. And meditating in this case simply means thinking about those portions of scripture, slowing down, reading them is great. We should always be thinking as we're reading, but slowing down to think it through, to observe what's written, drawing out meaning, drawing out truth, drawing out the instruction that's for our lives, letting God tell us who he is, letting us hear what he thinks of us and what we should do telling us of the gospel and of its many facets and allowing the spirit to bring clarity, to bring understanding, to bring conviction that this is true and that we ought to conform our minds, our thinking, and our ways to God's truth. So yes, I, I recommend memorizing scripture. I recommend meditating on scripture, um, not as someone, well, first off, Memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture, two separate things really. You can certainly meditate on scripture without memorizing it, but there are two things that go well, so well together. You memorize scripture, you're going to be thinking through it. And so that's why I'm giving you both of those things in a pair. Um, yes, I, I recommend it, but uh, not as someone who's memorized hundreds of verses and meditated on those verses, or nor made a lifelong practice of it myself. Uh, I recommend it because I've seen its fruits, the fruit of peace, of joy, of increasing holiness in the lives who have made this effort and sustained it by the grace of God in their lives. I recommend it at one as one who regrets, regrets honestly, not having made a better habit of this myself. And as someone who can say now, by the grace of God, that memorizing scripture, getting to slow down and think upon it, 
is a growing joy in my life, a growing delight in my life, and produces the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness. Christ-likeness in me is coming by way of the scriptures. Let's go ahead and worship together. I'll be back up here and pray for us. Please stand. We're going to sing glorious again.